Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 15th, 2022. We've been having some pretty impressive people on the show recently. All Pulitzer Prize winners. We had Nicole Eustace, who just won the 2022 Pulitzer for her book, Covered with Night, a book about pre-colonial murders in pre-colonial America. Very interesting book, Covered with Night. Um, And uh, she talked to me about what the murder of an indigenous Indian tells us about the dark origins of the United States. I probably don't need to be reminded of those dark origins, but she certainly rethinking, revising the whole idea of Europeans bringing civilization to the savages or the so-called savages who lived in America when the Europeans showed up. In fact, she's arguing the reverse is true. Um, We also did an interview with another Pulitzer Prize winner, Ada Ferrer, the Cuban-American historian. She has a wonderful book out called Cuba and American History, which talks about how Cuba and America or Cuba in the United States, their histories are so bound up with one another that they're impossible to separate. So in many ways, when Ferrer writes about Cuba, she's also writing about the United States. I think the Pulitzer likes to put its finger on the pulse of America. And I'm thrilled today that we have another 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner. Many of you will be familiar with the work of Jennifer Signor. She's a former New York Times writer she had a bestseller from 2014 or 2013, All Joy and No Fun. And she's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic. And she won uh, the Pulitzer in 2022 uh, for, according to the Pulitzer Prize, distinguished feature writing for an unflinching portrait of a family's reckoning with loss in the 20 years since 9-11. And I'm thrilled that uh, Jen is joining us from Brooklyn. I joked with her before the show that we did an interview with Nabil Ayers earlier this week, a music exec, and he was ranked the seventh most important person in Brooklyn. Jen's talking to me from Brooklyn. Uh, Jen, where do you rank on that list? Uh, I don't. I don't rank. Uh, <laughs> You're unrankable. <laughs> well, certainly the the Pulitzer people ranked you number one for your feature writing. Uh, I, I've been reading it. Uh, I, I'm always a big fan of your work, and uh, I, I reread. Um, uh, one of your pieces, what Bobby McIlvain left behind, one of the pieces from your 9-11 series, uh, and it's incredibly moving and profound. Do you think that you somehow in this work captured the spirit of post-9-11 America? I'm not sure if you were necessarily wanting to do that, but is that yeah. something that came out of the work? I, I wasn't, you know, that's funny. It wasn't, in my mind, conceived as a story about 9-11 or America, it was conceived as a story about grief and how you manage grief and uh, a sudden grief, abrupt grief uh, 20 years on. Um, it was going to be a story just about a marriage. You know, I'm interested in the fact that um, we were, we for five years, we were talking about how do you get along with your Trump-loving uncle? Um, and yet, that was really nothing compared to how do you get along in your marriage when your husband decides that the government has killed your son in 9-11, totally embracing a conspiracy theory. And, and you this, uh, to- for people watching the image of uh, 
Bobby's father, Bobby McIlvain's father, who believed yeah. in that theory. Yeah, I mean, I was much more interested in the kind of intimate ways that we all grie grieve differently and what we do to cope and the kind of stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell others and what we hang on to and the ways that we keep people alive. To me, this was a story about grieving and loss. So uh, I'm sure that indirectly it said things about America. And I think that there's probably an unconscious through line between this story where I was looking to see how was it that somebody like Bobby McElveen's father could embrace these cockamamie conspiracy theories um, about 9-11, you know, being this inside job. Um, and how you get from that to Steve Bannon, which is my my current cover, not cover story, it's just a, a long story in, um, in the Atlantic. It, with conspiracies sort of tying them both that that might be maybe why you asked the question but yeah well that's one of the areas i, I want to lead to but before we get there i, I want to talk of course about you, you have another wonderful piece the most recent piece called american rasputin on steve bannon yeah. your style of writing is to me simultaneously extraordinarily intimate but also analytical and distant how do you pull that one off it's very hard <laughs> That's very kind of you. I don't know, maybe because um, uh, I was in psychoanalysis as a kid. I, I can't tell you. You have a certain style. It's, you know, you're, you're wearing simultaneously two hats. There's Jen chatting on the phone, chatting to Bannon, chatting to these people who have gone through terrible tragedies after 9-11. And then there's a, an incredibly analytical, distant, hard-headed journalist. And, and you seem to manage to... To, to, to carry both off simultaneously in your writing. Oh, well, that's very sweet. Well, I, I can give a more serious answer then, I guess, or a better answer, although that wasn't an unserious answer, that, you know, you become attuned if you go through an early analysis, you, you're inclined to think psychologically, and um, I'm kind of a sociable creature, so I like to, if you're kind of going to say, like, hey, you just seem like a really like a smart bartender, you know, you're a convener and you're informal, but you also analyze things. That's awfully nice. Um, I, my mother was a math and music person. You know, she was an opera singer and a math major. And I think I have some of her, I was throughout high school going to be pre-med, you know, I was going to, I'm sorry, in college, I was pre-med for a while thinking I would go to med school and be a psychiatrist. So I, I have a kind of analytical brain anywho. So maybe it's just blending the two kind of, both sides. I don't know. I don't know. We have a lot of guests from the Atlantic, many of your colleagues, and I'm a great admirer of people like George Packer. He's great. Um, Pete Rayner, many others, Anne Applebaum. But they all have a, if you like, for better or worse, a moral quality to their writing. You seem to have left that behind, which I, to me at least gives your writing even more power. Uh, do you try to avoid making judgments in your work? Yes, <laughs> I do. I do. Um, I, I feel like when you're writing a profile, and I, I do a lot of sketches of people, right? A lot of psychological portraiture and what. Um, the trick is to make them seem more like themselves or the most like themselves. Um, and that means you can't really judge them, right? You're just letting them kind of pop alive in 3D on the page. You kind of have to stand sideways and get out of the way. So um, it's a very different style. Also, you know, I was an anthro major in college. I think ethnography is um, without judgment, right? You're trying to be of the environment in a way. Um, 
I love the moral force in George Packer and Ann Applebaum's work. I think it's amazing. And, and George also has like a novelistic quality too, but there's like a moral urgency. Um, and Anne is just intellectually rigorous, ruthless in her rigors. And again, there's a morally urgent quality. Um, I'm trying to sort of show a world as it is or a person as they are. Um, it's ethnography or, you know, a, a sketch as opposed to the kind of art, moral arguments that they're making. And perhaps the richest portrait, at least in the McIlvain piece, is of him, this remarkable young man who had a tragically young death. Uh, seems as if he, that the death is even more complicated because he, he may have been outside the towers when he died, but he, he, he was a very close friend of your brother. Um, and you leave this, this wonderfully warm portrait of, of this young man. He was an incredible figure, wasn't he? He was. He was self-invented. He was kind of this miracle of self-invention. And I just adored him and came through the front door saying that, you know, I mean, I, I of course, knew him. Um, I, he's easy to bring alive because um, there is a lot to uh, to work with here. He had a Forrest Gump quality. He had this zealot quality where he intersected with like almost a comical number of famous people. Like in high school, he was not only a star student, but a star basketball player. And he was in the Philly suburbs. And so was Kobe Bryant. And the two played each other in as high schoolers. And Bobby managed to score like 16 points off of Kobe, um, or at least set up shots or actually directly score off of Kobe. Um, then he got into Princeton, which for his family was this very big deal. His parents didn't expect to send a kid to Princeton. They were, you know, working class and, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, never mentioned the Ivy League. Bobby, when he got into Princeton, he'd never visited the place, never visited it. He'd never laid eyes on it. Um, he shows up, he's super interested in African-American culture and, um, and literature, and he majors in, or he minors, I guess, he's an English major, minor in African-American studies and somehow gets into a course with Toni Morrison. And when uh, when he died, Toni Morrison wrote not one but two condolence letters to the McElveins about him and sent along uh, his final paper to her, which was really pretty good. Um, You're not, I know your, your narratives aren't consciously metaphorical, but one can't help taking away from this piece, this this idea of the, the tragedy of America. Here was a young man nurtured by remarkable, well, not by, by very ordinary parents, but he was remarkable. They sent him off to Princeton. He was going to be a superstar in whatever he chose to do, maybe a writer, maybe Hollywood, who knows, a lawyer, whatever he chose to do, he would have been enormously successful. He had this catastrophic end in 9-11. And then their lives are entirely destroyed. The father becomes a conspiracy theorist. The mother is completely lost. His ex-fiance remarries, but she never gets over it. Is this, in a way, uh, I, I know it's a it's a it's a rather heavy-handed question, uh, Jen, but is it a metaphor for America? I mean, there are so many varieties of American experience. I I, I don't know how how to answer that. I mean, I think that the better uh, going back to your first question, I think it it, it may be a metaphor for how we grieve that three different people went in three starkly different directions and that 
there is no one way to grieve and that the, the you know, steps of grieving are kind of literary conceits. They're not actually literally what one does. Um, people don't mourn sequentially, they don't mourn logically, they mourn idiosyncratically. So, you know, one, his fiance going off on one path and hanging on to a diary for years and years and then remarrying and, you know, the mother kind of bottling up her grief and not wanting to talk about her grief and avoiding the same supermarket where she'd shopped for years just so that she wouldn't be in the awkward position of having to console others about her own loss was to me incredibly moving and not wanting to be a victim, never wanting to publicly discuss this. When she was out, she just wanted to be out. And her husband leading with his grief, waking up every day as if, as if it were September 12th and only talking about September 11th as a means of coping, which is something his wife had absolutely no interest in doing at all. That to me is like, I think a good, I don't know if it's a metaphor for, but I think it's fairly typical about how really intimate groupings of people process grief, which is differently. And so it's a way that grief doesn't unite people. It can actually really strain them and, you know, separate them and divide them. And so what's remarkable to me about them is that they all, they held together. The McIlvain family became tighter in spite of their very different ways of grieving. And their son, Jeff, went on a very different trajectory all of his own and had so much of his life left to live that he had to decide to be exceptionally positive throughout all of this and make the conscious decision that his brother's death, death was not going to in any way misshape the arc of his own life. He was going to lead a very good life in spite of it. And he was doing it for... Uh, the brother who you knew, do you find as a writer writing about someone you knew quite well who died, given your style of, as I said, a sort of a distant intimacy, a playful intimacy, which is also analytical, does that make it harder as a writer? As someone who who, who is an artist as a writer, I mean, you, you do nonfiction, but you're not just another nonfiction writer. I mean, you want the Pulitzer, right? Yeah, I mean, that's very nice of you to say. I, I, I think I, it was easier with Bobby because I didn't, I loved him, I adored him, but it's not like I knew him so well. He was my brother's roommate. My brother is six years younger than me. So when you're 24 and you're dealing with an 18 year old freshman, they seem very different and much younger, you know? When he died, um, I mean, I you know, I saw Bobby. Yeah, I, Saw him when I visited my brother at school. I saw him at graduation dinner. I saw him at dinners in New York that my parents would take us all out to eat. Bobby would be there. I knew his parents a little bit. Now I know them very well. But um, it was easier precisely because I got to still report. There were still things I was discovering. And had it been someone I know well, I you know, I'm trying, my next story will probably involve writing about my mother somewhat. And I don't know how that's gonna go. I don't know what if it's gonna be- What do you mean somewhat? Somewhere. Uh, it's a story about my mother's sister, um, who, uh, who we haven't talked about in the family. And, um, so I'll wind up talking about my mom quite a bit. Um, great. Well, we'll have to, another excuse to get you on the show. Let's go from this all American boy to another all American guy who is very different. Uh, I resent kind of, they're even being within the same 30 seconds of each other. Uh, anyway, yes. Well, I have to admit, um, 
and maybe because I read them back to back, your pieces on uh, uh, on the two, uh, this one on Steve Bannon, American Rasputin, your style is the same and you realize the same kind of intimacy and playfulness and seriousness in the two pieces. Um, one of the things that occurred to me in reading the piece on Bannon is he comes across as a uniquely, again, I have to be careful with this word, as a, as a, as a deeply American character, for better or worse, don't you think? Yeah, no, I do. I absolutely think, and I can elaborate, but I'm curious what makes him very American to you. His reinvention, his energy, his playfulness, all the best qualities of Americanness as a as a immigrant, it's why I came to this country in the first place. And yet when you put them all together, you've got an American Rasputin who most of us aren't particularly keen on for one reason or another. So what went wrong or perhaps what went right with Bannon? You got really close to him. And one of the things that intrigues me is why did he agree to even do the thing with you? He knew you were going to savage him in your own way. I think he he's fundamentally a media guy. Um, I think like his former boss, he craves mainstream coverage and respectability. Um, yes, he absolutely knew he was jokingly referring to me as an assassin throughout. And it was never mysterious what my political point of view was. And I said to him over and over again that I thought what he was doing was exceptionally dangerous. So, um, you know, but he he might take a certain amount of pleasure in thinking that I'm not sure why he co cooperated with me, but I, I, I mean, mean, he's clearly the kind of guy who likes sleeping with the enemy, but maybe you are as well. No. So why it, did you agree to do it? Because I had gotten away with writing two non-political pieces for the Atlantic as my two first pieces. And by the time the third one came around, my editor looked at me and said, okay, you know, how about American democracy now? Cause you know, it's in jeopardy and it's the biggest story that there is. Who's your editor at the Atlantic? Oh, no, I'm at the editor-in-chief. Uh, Goldberg, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he said, you know, you, you don't want to be sitting on the bench while this happens, right? Doctor, this is our bread and butter, and this is the biggest story possibly ever, but certainly of our lives. You know, like, let's let's do this. God, that picture. Um, yeah, so... Are people, not what, are people who are just listening, we have a picture of Steve Bannon pointing his fat finger at the camera, looking at us. Like yeah. an assassin, he might accuse you of being assassin, but he's really the assassin, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Right. No, I, I agree with that. Um, so uh, that's why I did it. I mean, the editor in chief of The Atlantic said, you've got to pick somebody. And my thought was probably partly keeping the McLevanes in mind. How is it that people fall prone to conspiracy theories and lies? And if you consider that the epistemological warfare is going to be what we are contending with from now probably and for the rest of our natural lives people living within their own sets of realities i mean he is he's a gladiator he's waging that war like few other uh, let's go back to that my point about him being i mean you call him american rasputin i'm not sure if he really is rasputin because Firstly, Rasputin failed. And secondly, Rasputin was secondary to someone else. But he's certainly an American gladiator, for better or worse, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And I think, you know, there's... Uh, he he comes from a... Uh, 
he comes from an America that I recognize. Um, he's from this big Irish Catholic working class family. His dad worked at the phone company for more than 50 years. Um, he, in 2008, when the market cratered, his father's 401k went down to practically nothing and he panicked and sold most of it off. And this, if you ask Steve, I don't know if it's true, you know, was sort of his conversion moment on the road to Damascus. He thought, this is it, screw them all, you know, screw the elites. Although, I mean, we can, we can reasonably ask whether that really was the pivotal moment for him or whether he's just kind of an, an opportunist. And, you know, even the Barnum quality to him is very, but first of all, like the working class kid from the South, Irish, you know, Irish Catholic, big clan, big, warm, gregarious clan. And a good family for, for, for all his political sins, a good family, man. Uh, I don't know how you're quite getting that. I mean, he's divorced three times. I mean, in terms of the original family, you, you present him at the funeral as someone who doesn't crave attention. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, classic middle kid, for sure. I mean, he definitely, I mean, on the one, well, let's also say this, though. He invited a reporter to come along to his dad's funeral. So that's a, a sort of funny gorilla <laughs> to pull on your, you know, four siblings. But they're so used to him that they just kind of shrugged it off. Like, I oh, hope yeah. you wore black, did you? I mean, I dressed totally appropriately. I don't know if people were um, in the traditional black. I think they were just in somber, you know, attire um, and conservative attire. And nobody was masked or almost nobody. And I don't know what percentage of the room was vaccinated. I have to believe not a lot. Um, but they were uh, they were a lovely warm clan. They, they were familiar in some senses. And... Um, the Barnum quality to Bannon is also very American. Um, I think that a lot of what he says isn't necessarily stuff he believes, that he's doing it for sport, that he is taking advantage of the suckers born every five minutes or whatever it was, every minute or whatever it was that Barnum supposedly said. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's... A highly, but but you can say, I mean, you can look at a lot of people and say that they're very American. You know, I mean, <laughs> you could look at me and say I'm very American. Uh, I could look at you and say you're very American. Well, right? you could, but you'd probably be wrong about me. I don't know about you. I don't know. You, well, you embrace this country, right? I mean, what is it? You know, I mean, that's kind of the mystery. I mean, there are lots of different aspects of the United States. I mean, is my, you know... Yeah, I mean, there, and there are many kinds. I, I take that point that there's not a, a single American, but there just seems to be, for somebody who perhaps is wanting to destroy America or is perceived to be wanting to destroy America, he seems unusually American. He certainly seems more American than the... And, and maybe this is how he wants to come across, or maybe he succeeded in trapping you into this feature. He certainly comes across as more American than... The coastal elites mostly who read the Atlantic. Uh, uh, maybe I'm being unfair then. Yeah, I mean, I just think it just depends on what aspect of America you're talking about, right? I mean, again, to say that there's something especially American, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how to really, is my experience of America any different from, I mean, am I less American for being, you know, of Russian Jewish descent and having grandparents who were you know union guys and 
then my parents joined the professional class and then they had the good fortune to send a kid to the Ivy League. And, you know, he's, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure, like there are many versions of America as my, are my, Korean in-laws different. I, I yeah. just don't know. Let me yeah, and, and I and I take your point. Let's compare. So if we compare Bobby, the self-made American who would have made something of himself, and Bannon, the self-made American who has made something of himself in a in a very creepy kind of way, um, maybe that's what I meant. This this figure of who came from nowhere or nothing and has the ability to invent and reinvent themselves a degree of plasticity definitely um and and yeah. bobby was a performer too you know he could he could play with basketball stars and beat them and uh, bannon probably could do the same sort of thing well yeah and bobby um was a performer i mean he he took modern dance at princeton and for his final project you know spelled out his girlfriend's name i mean he was definitely he relished that kind of thing um but uh Although not as extroverted as his brother, funnily enough. I mean, he had a slightly introverted side too. But um, I mean, I, I think that it's absolutely right. To the extent that one is able to self-invent here like no other place, that's certainly true. My parents could do it. Bobby could do it. I could do it. Bannon could do it. Bannon became a card-carrying member of the coastal elite, whether he admits it or not. He went to Harvard Business School and the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. and. He worked in Hollywood and he worked at Goldman Sachs, all as, you know, a, a kid from Richmond, Virginia, where, you know, his uh, his dad worked for the phone company. I mean, yes, that's American, that your trajectory can go ever upward, you know. That's, that's and it's I'm this doing. ability to conveniently forget. I mean, you're reminding people of him. You're reminding people of Bobby. That's the business of writers. Uh, but America's business, perhaps, is in forgetting. <laughs> Right. Well, you're unencumbered by your history. You could just come. We, we, we embrace the RAVs, you know, we give them reality shows. Um, sure. Um, and that's fine. Why should we be encumbered by, you know, anything so boring as our lineage? So let's think more about this, this Bannon thing. How long did it take you to write? How much time did you spend with him? It's sort of misleading because, um, in the, I started working on it in late January and it didn't, uh, and I handed it in uh, in late May. Um, but in that time, I had not one but two family funerals to attend that were very serious and sort of long. Bannon's own father died and that was kind of disruptive for our chatting. Um, and I had another cover story come out in the middle of it and I had to do publicity for that. So, but I was fitfully, um, down there with him in Washington and um, over the course of four months and then writing and, uh, and, and texting with him throughout. Um, it probably took me about three weeks to get it all on paper, you know, and in the right and in a row, <laughs> you know. Do you, I mean, thinking about when you started the project versus where you ended it, I mean, you obviously, we would all go in with assumptions about Bannon. What surprised you in your uh, sort of this odd intimacy with him. What, what, how do you think of him now differently than you did before you started the project? His sunniness was surprising to me, that he was a very upbeat guy and almost clubbable, that, and which shouldn't surprise me because he's, like I said, had his passport stamped at all of these familiar places. But his temperament, I mean, he has a temper, but his natural equilibrium is he's sunny. 
so and I wouldn't have said you know that the, the, the angry thing that sort of that howling belligerent at the mic is not who he is when the mic is off. He's relaxed and pleasant, highly agreeable. Um, if he didn't say a word and you just saw the long hair, he recently had it cut, I think for our photo shoot, but he had that crazy long hair and that slightly sunburnt look um, and those disheveled, yeah, his hair is shorter in the pictures that you were showing on screen than when I was visiting with him. And when he had that and like the two rumpled shirts, um, they almost implied Madras shorts and flip-flops. Like he could have been from the Big Lebowski, like the dude or something. Mm -hmm. um, not once he started talking politics, obviously. But um, uh, that I had not expected, that vibe. You talk about him losing his temper. The one time in the piece she lost his temper was... Um seems to be over his podcast. I didn't quite realize what a big deal the War Room podcast is. You present it as important in terms of how the world sees him and how he sees himself. Is is for him the achievement of the War Room a really big deal? Yes. And if you minimize it, he gets very upset. Yeah, that's what you said. <laughs> yeah, if you suggest that it's... Why? I mean, why does he care about a podcast, you think? I mean, why does Trump care about his crowd numbers? You know, I think these guys live and die by metrics. Uh, I can't give you, I mean, it's it's affirmation of some kind and it's proof that he's, you know, it's the Sally Field principle. You like me, you really, really like me. You know, it's just how how, how adored you are or how revered you are, how respected, how um, he, want, he wants to be taken seriously. You know, I mean, and he gerrymanders the numbers to do this, bear in mind. I mean, I don't think he's carried on Spotify. He is on Apple. And Apple has a politics category, and he's very, very intent on making sure everybody understands that he's always number one or number two in that category. But if you look, he is often number two in that category, but he's like the 200th most, most listened to podcast. There are a lot of other things populating it above him, including Don Bongino and you know Ben Shapiro and um, uh, Joe Rogan. You know, uh, and there are a lot of people who are far more listened to. And for that matter, the Pod Save America guys, um, their, their, listener, their audiences are far larger, but he hangs on to this one particular way that it, it's measured, which is that on Apple, is he the number two uh, podcast in the politics category or the number one one? Now, I have um, to admit, as a podcaster, I play the same. We all play the same game. We all want, we all want to be loved because that's what our business sure. is. I mean, do you think that, I mean, you called it, I don't know if it was your decision or, or your editor's decision to call him the American Rasputin. I'm not even sure what Rasputin's significance was in Russian history. It was perhaps mostly a footnote, theatrical footnote. Do you think Bannon has any real historical importance in 50 years when he's long gone? What will we remember Bannon for? I don't know. I don't think we know enough yet about Bannon. I mean, I, I, I'm still very interested in where the January 6th hearings sort of take us. Um, but uh, look, he helped Trump get elected in 2016. That campaign was foundering. Um, would Trump have been elected anyway? Maybe, um, but maybe not. Um, is he right now, would, I would make the case that he played a role in marshalling the energy behind January 6th, that 
he has a disproportionate influence, that he is sort of an asymmetrical threat, that even if he has a smaller listenership and he seems like really the answer is that he's not very significant, he's just kind of this pathetic guy in a basement, you can still inflame people and get them involved in local politics. You don't, it doesn't take much. Like think about how few people in the end reached the capital. It wasn't hundreds of thousands of people. It wasn't even tens of thousands of people. You, you need, I mean, a, a small percentage of people can do an awful lot of, a, a very small number of people can do an awful lot of damage. And that's what I think Steve, Bann, I mean, there are presidents who you would say ultimately aren't all that consequential over the course of history. So I don't know how to say, so Steve Bannon in that sense, no, of course not. But, you know, do I think he's influencing things right now? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, absolutely. He's clearly a man for hire. How loyal do you think he is to Trump? For as long as Trump has juice. <laughs> does, does Trump have juice still, do you think? I, I don't think we know. Do you think uh, Bannon thinks Trump has juice? Sometimes, because I think sometimes he does. Because Bannon's Biden... smart enough to invent a much better Trump, a Trump 2.0, who would do all the things that he'd like him to do without all the nonsense, right? Well, Bannon has said that he really respects uh, DeSantis. You know, I mean, DeSantis, he said something very funny to me and interesting to me about DeSantis, which is what I love about DeSantis is um, the standard used to be that you'd look at a politician and ask, um, do I, DeSantis, you don't want to have a beer with him and he doesn't want to have a beer with you. He doesn't care, you know, and that to me was super duper um, revealing. You end on a very dark note. Um, you quote him, uh, he's talking about the House Republicans rejecting the decision on the 2020 election. This is going to be so fucking epic. Two thirds of House Republicans voted to reject the results of the 2020 election. How long before it's three quarters, four fifths, nine tenths? How long before one of these people becomes speaker? Why, I ruefully ask, was he so relentless with his pronunciamentos? And then he says, because like a Kafka novel, one can never escape. Watch me, I wrote. I'm going downstairs and doing a load of laundry. And I did but my phone still lights up most nights. Bannon is still texting. So a couple of questions, Jenna, finally. Uh, do you agree with him? Can we escape? Is this America now like a Kafka novel? And is he still texting you? Well, um, I, I think that this is, I think this is by no means over. I think that for the rest of my natural life, I think we are going to be trying to right the ship here. And it's anyone's guess whether it can be righted. Um, so I think in that way he is right. This is this is our new reality. I think that the Republican Party and base has been captured. Um, and so we are democracy. At least half of Americans or half the American political establishment want to destroy American democracy. They're at least they're election denialists. They seem perfectly content to throw out legitimate election results. Um, that to me is no longer, you're not talking about a democracy anymore if you're willing to reject. I mean, we'll see, we'll see. Maybe the election deniers will not have their way. 
maybe something will be reinstated. The Romney wing of the, you know, the, the, the Kinzinger wing of the Republican Party looks to me vanishingly, it looks to be non-existent to me, but we'll see. Um, I guess anything can happen. Um, he had stopped texting me. He texted me the morning it came out, the day after, perfectly cheerful, then stopped. And I was never, I was perfectly delighted to be ghosted. And then he texted me again last night while I was at a Yankees game with my son. So um, you, did you miss him at all? It reminds me of that Sherlock Holmes character, you know, always with text. Did you miss me? Did you miss me? Oh, was that Mycroft? Yeah. Yeah. No, Mycroft uh, is the brother, the, uh, oh. the evil one. What's his name? Uh, it's not Mycroft. You're right. God, I thought I had it too. Um, what is the my name of the name? Yeah. What's the name of the Sherlock Holmes villain? So famous, we can't remember. Neither of us can oh, remember his name anyway. He would always text, do you miss me? Do you miss me? Hey, Rusty. There's certainly a Bannon, a Bannon quality to him, I think. Yeah, I'm calling my son to find out whether, but um, do you miss me? Do you miss me? I mean, I'm sure, yes, that's probably not unlike something he would say. Um, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I, there were times that he was a pleasant enough texter. He doesn't do banter the way you and I do banter. So it was awfully, it was often very stressful. And was he it a bit of a flirt? Did... I mean, sometimes in your piece, no. there's a sense of that. No. So there was no know. sort of sexual in, innuendo ever with him? Oh God, no. No. That's <laughs> <laughs> a hard no. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I'm pleased it, to hear that. Yeah, no, you know, I Steve, mean... Steve, if you're um, watching, Jen doesn't miss you, so go away, bother somebody else. Jen, uh, congratulations on everything, on your wonderful writing. Thank enormously you. intimate, analytical, funny, serious. You're one of America's best writers. I think certainly one of the Atlantic's best writers because you're slightly less moral. You appear less serious, but actually I think you're more serious than some of the other writers. Um, congratulations on the Pulitzer, wonderful achievement. Many awards to come, I'm sure. Many books, many articles. I'm looking forward to reading the piece on your aunt or your mom later. We'll get you back on the show. What else are you reading these days, Jen? Anything else interesting? Oh, you know what I'm doing? Well, uh, so first of all, I'm listening to, I'm almost done, um, Frank Langella's memoir, Drop Names, and it's sublime. It is sublime. Old Hollywood. I know Frank Langella has been canceled and I don't care. Um, it, 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 every uh, black and white icon movie star he has worked with, he worked with them as a young man. So you hear about Betty Davis, you hear about Montgomery Clift, you hear about Charlton Heston, or, or he intersected with them, you, you know, and Richard Burton and Laurence Olivier. I mean, it's just, it's magnificent. The stories are endless. And, you know, Jackie Kennedy, I mean, also just ter terrifically famous, towering American figures. That couldn't be more fun. I also decided I've never read anything by Eric Larson and my son is mm. getting really into uh, World War II. So I, I got this. Yeah, I heard he's very good. I'm like, you yeah, I've never read anything. Well, right. You and I probably don't read like the mainstream, right? Like the big bestsellers. That's like not where we live. So I read, I'm starting to read The Splendid in the Vile and it's great. It's really, really good. Um, and also I just read Shamila uh, Shamsi's uh, Home Fires. Um, I'm like five, six or seven years late to that. Um, while I was a book critic, um, my colleague Dwight reviewed it and just adored it. So I thought, Dwight Garner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I'm going to get around to doing this now. And it was just whiz bang fabulous. It was terrific.